During the height of the Roman Republic, the state contracted with private companies to perform many public services. And like modern-day corporations, these government contractors, called publicani, issued investment shares called particuli, the equivalent of today's over-the-counter shares. Every Roman citizen was invited to participate, and many saw it as their civic duty to invest in the empire they so loved. Today we'll hear from Professor Luis Ficera about his case entitled, Loyal Three, Own What You Love. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you're listening to Cold Call. So we are all sitting there in the classroom. The professor walks in. And, and they look up, and you know it's coming. Oh, the dreaded cold call. Professor Becerra teaches MBA doctoral students and executives at Harvard Business School. He's a financial economist whose research focuses on investment management and capital markets. Luis, welcome. Thank you so much. As I read this case, I thought this is my opportunity to get rich. Uh, I'm going to go to Loyal 3, and I'm going to begin investing. Uh, I learned a lot from reading this case. But maybe you can start just by setting the case up for us. Who's the protagonist, and what's the scenario that the case begins with? The case starts by looking at what the uh, currency of the company and one of the uh, founders of the company, Barry Snyder, is thinking what to do after taking the company to, through some initial successes, mm-hmm. and actually very significant successes. Loyal 3 is based on the initial vision of one of the founders, Stephen Klein, who's an HBS graduate. And he actually developed that vision when he was a student here at HBS. Mm-hmm. And he had this idea of thinking about what he calls the connected owner or, or the affinity investor, which is this idea that shareholders make better customers. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to take that into a business model. The initial idea of Loyal 3 was actually to providing consumers to be shareholders in a way where it was cost-effective for the small investors so and the people, small consumer. Regular people. People uh, like you and me, yeah. essentially. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how they started. Yeah. Soon afterwards, um, Barry Snyder joins the company, and they developed that vision into something a little bit different. It's sort of like a twist that proved to be quite successful for this company initially. Mm-hmm which is why don't we think about bringing IPOs to the small consumer and investor. Barry and Stephen had this idea that why we don't make those uh, shares available to smaller investors who might be actually very interested in acquiring shares on companies they love and what it would take to do that. And the case leads the reader through what it takes to do that. It's not simple at all. No, no. It takes a lot of convincing, a lot of persuasion. To be able to do this takes a lot of actually technical expertise. What prompted you to write the case? Why were you interested in this particular company and this topic? I have been interested lately, and I think there are a lot of students in campus interested in the so-called fintech businesses. These are new businesses that are emerging. They're trying to bridge technology with investment management services and banking services. Mm -hmm. And in a way, they are trying to disrupt those industries with new businesses models that are very based on technology. They tend to be outside the mainstream of what those businesses are, like banks and asset management firms. Mm -hmm. They are also looking into demographics that probably have been ignored by those firms. 
And specifically, they might have been looking at, uh, like in the case of Loyal3, generally retail investors who have no access to IPOs, who generally have not been paid attention by big brokerage firms or asset management firms. And yet these demographics are the savers of the future. They are accumulating assets Mm -hmm. and they are eager to find things that, you know, attract them. And they tend to be different uh, behavior as, as consumers, but we are discovering they also have different behavior and taste as investors as well. I wanted to talk about the IPO product in particular because this is one that I felt was a true differentiator for them. You go into very good detail on the case about how the IPO process works. And uh, Loyal3 chose to take a pretty interesting strategy when they approached uh, Wall Street about how they would be able to integrate into the IPO process. Can you talk about their approach? I guess uh, the best way to describe it is how Barry Snyder the CEO of the company, describes the process, which is democratizing Wall Street from within. Mm-hmm. So they are trying to you know, find a place and do it, but they understand they need to play by the rules. In the IPO process, that highly regulated, highly controlled, if you wish, by the SEC. Without SEC support, you would never be able to do this. Mm-hmm. So there's no point in trying to completely break with the industry. It yeah. is more about how do we work with the industry mm-hmm. to actually make those IPOs accessible to smaller investors. They even talk in the case about how disruptive innovation isn't the right approach to take here. So it's almost like they're disruptors in disguise in some, to some extent. They know the system and they know how to make it work and, and how to find their way in. They are disruptive in the ways they need to be disruptive. But yeah. there are certain ways where breaking down would basically shut them off completely from the process Mm -hmm. because, you know, the SEC, one of their jobs is to have investor protection. Yeah. And you could think how something like this might not actually end up protecting investors. Mm -hmm. And so they need to work with the SEC and they understood that from day one and they were quite successful in doing that, actually. You give an example in the case, uh, I think it was Barry who brought it up, uh, about Jim Cook and Boston Beer and the way that he approached it. Can you describe what Jim did? Well, Jim actually offered shares on Boston Beer through the beers he was selling. So you would get a coupon <laughs> in your uh, pack of six uh, bottles and mm-hmm. say, send it back to the company and we'll, we'll give you shares in the IPO. You could think of that as a clunky process. You need to mail it back. You need to do quite a few things to actually end up getting the shares mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Yeah. Think about fast-forwarding to a company that basically in three clicks you are in and you're seeing not just Boston Beer but many other companies that might be offering IPOs through their site. It changes completely the the way you think about it. But the important thing about that example in the case is to see that there's interest by issuers, by companies going IPO, especially companies that talk to or they are in the consumer product space to actually reach out to their most loyal customers Mm -hmm. and try to make them participate in the IPO. Yeah, it goes back to the sort of Roman example of, you know, if you really love this brand uh, and you own, now you own, you know, shares of stock and you're part of the IPO process, your level of loyalty clearly would go up. But, you know, that drives the whole brand of the company, right? That's the whole vision at Loyal3. How important is the tech part of fintech? The tech part actually is very important for this company. In the process, there is a stage in which, first of all, you need to express interest in acquiring shares. 
And of course, that might be easy for everyone to do. But there is a twist in the process, which is once there is an agreement on, first of all, we start establishing the banks who are going to be underwriting the IPO. They're going to establish a range of what they think the, the IPO price should be, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They go into a roadshow that price get discussed with potential investors in the in the IPO. They literally go out and they talk about the business plan. There's the roadshow and, and all, all kind of things. And at the end of the day, right before the IPO, there has to be an agreement on the price. So they first establish a range of prices, and then the final price is established. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the regulatory framework from the SEC says if the final IPO price is within that range is fine, we just go that and we allocate the shares at that price. But if the price happens to be outside that range with certain limits, mm-hmm. you need to get reconfirmation for those who are going to end up getting the shares allocated to them. Right. Imagine reaching out to potentially millions of people. Mm-hmm. You have two hours to decide, do you want to recommit to this at this price? When there might be, say, 500,000 of us, we need to get a message. We need to be able to get back and reconfirm. That requires a technology that uh, is not easily available. Right. So this becomes a differentiator for that them. That becomes a differentiator yeah. for them, or they claim to be that to be a differentiator. So that's open for discussion uh, in the case. Yeah. But certainly that's one of the ways that they describe their technological edge. They claim that most banks in Wall Street and retail brokers don't have the technology that would allow them to do this efficiently. Now we've and seen they, with uh, healthcare.gov that uh, there can be real problems. It that could come. be very big problems, right? Mm-hmm. So they claim to have a platform on a technology. In fact, the case described how that was actually tested uh, very intensively by a skeptical bank. They left uh, quite impressed on how seamlessly that had worked. Yeah. And for them, you know, one of the things that we learned from the case in general and the trust and trustworthiness is one of the important things in every firm that deals with people's money. Mm-hmm. If you have a big failure, like the healthcare gov, that can break trust. Yeah. And that might make people shy away from from your model, from your business. Mm-hmm. So for them, it was very important that this thing work flawlessly. The case described how that has worked so far flawlessly. Right. So uh, let's go back then to the, the sort of the question that's on the table for the protagonist in the beginning of the case is whether or not to continue to focus on the products that they've already built or to think about partnerships or going international. So the so decisions that they have to make. Have you had the protagonist come into class when you've discussed this? Yes. Barry Snyder was here for the first time we discussed the case. We had an opportunity to discuss the case for about an hour, and then Barry listened to us, and I opened the floor for him, and he had a very, actually, interesting and intense discussion with the students for about 20 minutes. So he found it rewarding. Any surprises, uh, without giving it away, any surprises that you learned from discussing the case with the students? There were surprises, and I think we discovered through the case discussion, given this multiplicity of things that they are doing, what is the real value added? Mm-hmm. They have three products that they offer, and the question is, what's the value added of each one of them, how they are connected? Mm-hmm. And if you are thinking about the future path that Loyal3 should take, it's very important they understand which product might be worth investing and developing, maybe bringing into other geographies, and mm-hmm. what it would take. Last question. 
Can you see the principal lessons from this case being applied to other industries, or is this kind of exclusive to sort of the fintech segment? Well, it applies in the sense that if you want to connect to these demographics, what does it take, mm. right? I think most of these brands are actually very interested in connecting with these demographics in multiple ways as customers, as consumers, as clients, as investors. This case, in a way, illustrates you know one strategy on how you go you go about that. Mm -hmm. So I think there are lessons learned in that respect. There are lessons learned on how you think about rewarding your customers. Many firms out there are thinking about how to not only to connect to these demographics, but how you reward them. What's the best way to bring loyalty? And that's a constant for every brand out there. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the third thing is, what does it mean to be a disruptor? Luis, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me as a guest. You can find this case along with thousands of others in the Harvard Business School case collection at hbr.org. I'm Brian Kenny. Thanks for listening to Cold Call, the official podcast of Harvard Business School.